You're listening to Bede, History for the Church, a conversation with Dr. Michael A.G. Hagen. Dr. Hagen serves as Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where he also serves as the Founder and Director at the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, and is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Well, the fourth century of Christian theology saw the articulation of the full divinity of the Son and the Holy Spirit, the fifth century invited a new challenge, namely the full humanity of the Son. With desires to balance the human and divine natures came the Nestorian controversy that sought to divide the incarnation into two persons, one divine and one human. The champion of what would later be expressed more fully, first at Ephesus in 431 and then at Chalcedon in 451, was Cyril of Alexandria, who articulated twelve anathemas to combat the Nestorian error. In Anathema 11 he stated, Whoever does not confess that the flesh of the Lord is life-giving and proper, belonging to the word of God the Father himself, but belongs as though to another person distinct from him and united to him in dignity, that is, has only divine in itself habitation, and does not confess, as we have said, that his flesh is life-giving, let him be anathema. And this question of the relationship between the human and divine natures is really at the focal point of our discussion today as we welcome a special guest uh, to the podcast, Dr. K.J. Drake, who is the Academic Dean and Assistant Professor of Historical Theology at Indianapolis Theological Seminary in Indianapolis. He attended Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis and completed his Ph.D. in Historical Theology at St. Louis University in 2018. His first book, entitled The Flesh of the Word, The Extra-Calvinisticum from Zwingli to Early Orthodoxy, was published in the Oxford Studies in Historical Theology in 2021. He is also a ruling elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, having served at churches in both Missouri and Ontario. And with that, I will turn that over to Dr. Haken and Dr. Drake. Thank you, Caleb. It's uh, great to have you with us, uh, Dr. Drake. And um, maybe before we get going, it Kind of build on that uh, little intro, you can just say a little bit about your present assignment and where you're currently serving and uh, what you're involved in. Thank you, Dr. Aiken. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I am the new uh, academic dean at Indianapolis Theological Seminary. We're a small seminary developing here in Indianapolis to do in-person theological education in central Indiana. I also teach historical theology here, uh, so I get the pleasure of doing both broad survey classes in church history, but also deep dives into figures of the tradition, such as John Calvin or other figures. Um, so it's an enjoyable time, and we're, hope, we're enjoying bringing um, more theological education here in central Indiana. Great. So let me um, ask the uh, question that kind of opened up our subject for today, which is the extra Calvinisticum. Um, and your work on it. Um, how you led to such a topic? Uh, well, maybe, maybe actually, in a nutshell, uh, if it can be done that in Nietzsche, uh, kind of you explain what that phrase means, the extra Calvinisticum, and uh, then uh, how were you led to this topic? Uh, why would you, why, why choose this particular topic to write a, a your doctoral thesis on? Yeah, so the extra Calvinisticum can sound rather daunting in its rather Latin abstraction there. But like many terms in church history, this comes originally from an insult. Um, the phrase extra Calvinisticum most literally means that strange Calvinistic beyond idea. 
But what's really going on here, I think, is better captured by the term extra carnum, or that Christ is beyond his flesh. So most simply, the extra Calvinistum answers the question, where is Jesus Christ now? How is it that the single person of the eternal son, who is eternal and therefore omnipresent, simultaneously took to himself a human nature that is local, that is present? So the extra Calvinisticum is, how is it that the eternal son, while fully becoming incarnate, remains simultaneously transcendent of all space and therefore omnipresent? That kind of complex relation of the one person in the two natures is what the extra Calvinisticum is really all about. How I ended up on this topic was beginning with, frankly, fascination. Since I first heard about this doctrine of the extra Calvinisticum in seminary, it's something that always stuck with me. I did quite a bit of work on the ascension of Christ, which is key in this doctrine. And it always kind of brought me back to this idea of Christ simultaneously everywhere and yet present in his human body. And so when I turned my eyes towards doctoral work, this kept coming back after several... um, you know, setting aside this topic and that topic, I really kind of fell in love with this idea and wanted to dedicate time to explaining it more fully. Okay, great. So when you use the phrase uh, Calvinisticum, obviously that uh, ties us back to the reformer, John Calvin. And, um, but is this, is this doctrinal uh, perspective present earlier than Calvin? Uh, Caleb there read from the the uh, the anathemas of Cyril of Alexandria, therefore, obviously, uh, bringing to bear the discussions about the relationship of the divine humanity in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ in the fifth mm-hmm. century. Um, is this argument that you're looking at um, present in the patristic era? Um, if so, where and how is it developed? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. So that was not the focus primarily of my work, but other scholars such as David Willis in a book called Calvin's Catholic Christology, as well as Andrew McGinnis, um, have looked at this in the patristic era more fully. So we see this dating back at least to Athanasius, but probably even earlier in the work of Origen. What we see in the patristic period is often expressed in terms of doxology praise for the fact that Christ would come and yet remain beyond. So for instance, uh, Athanasius says in On the Incarnation, for he was not as might be imagined circumscribed in the body, nor while present in the body was he absent elsewhere, nor while he moved the body was the universe left void of his working and providence. But thing most marvelous, word as he was, so far from being contained by anything, he rather contained all things himself. So we see there in Athanasius this kind of dual praise, this marvelous thing that Christ would come without leaving the Father, that he would be everywhere and yet particular in the virgin's womb. And so we see that kind of idea develop both in Athanasius, you see it in Cyril, you see it in Leo the Great. Uh, I've done some work recently demonstrating its presence across the work of Augustine. And so it does seem to be a standard of the patristic testimony to the two natures of Christ. Okay. So it stretches across both Greek and Latin patristic uh, Christological formulation. It's not just 
restricted maybe to the Latin tradition. Yes, indeed. And then uh, you find it uh, discussed, uh, um, developed in the Middle Ages? Yeah, so I think the first real discussion comes in Augustine. You see these mentions throughout the Greek and the Latin patristics, um, but Augustine really works it out a bit in a couple letters, and then it gets picked up by Peter Lombard in the sentences, specifically to deal with the question of the presence of Christ during the three days. So how do we think of Christ's person, divinity, and human nature between his death and resurrection? And so there you see this picked up in Lombard and then picked up by Aquinas and others who comment on it. Hmm. So you mentioned that at the beginning there that it was a, the, the phrase extra Calvinisticum is a slur. Mm-hmm. And so obviously it was... Uh, it, it, it originated, obviously, in theological debate during the Reformation era. And it's a slur from Lutheran theologians or not yes. Catholic? But so Lutheran. primarily primarily Lutheran. Uh, the first use of the term happens in the 1620s in an intra-Lutheran debate over some of these questions. Um, one Lutheran camp accuses the other of committing uh, the extra-Calvinistica. And so before this, that term isn't really used. And That is kind of why this doctrine goes under the radar, I think. Um, It's hard to find a, what is the locus under which to discuss it? And so it often is mentioned without being further discussed. So 1620s. So it's, but it it obviously is being discussed back in the the height of the Reformation era, correct? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, so the so the term dates from the 1620s. The idea okay. and the dispute really goes back to the very early period of the Reformation in the 1520s, as Luther and Zwingli begin to debate the Lord's Supper. And so, in the Middle Ages, as I noted, this is primarily about the presence of Christ during the Tridium, the three days. As we move into the Reformation, it becomes very important for how one understands the Eucharistic presence of Christ, with Zwingli arguing for a local ascension into heaven, according to Christ's human nature. And Luther ends up arguing for what comes to be known as ubiquity, or the fact that the human nature of Christ in some way partakes of divine omnipresence so that he might be bodily present in the Eucharistic elements. And this sets the Reformed and the Lutheran on distinct tracks when it comes to understanding the body of Christ, the Eucharist, and such doctrines as the communicatio idiomatum, or how we apply terms to Christ given his two natures. Now, both Luther and Zwingli would affirm a Chalcedonian Christology, correct? Yes. And so there is a sense in which both of them are in agreement that during the Incarnation, the deity is not confined to the limits of the human body, that the the divine word is still one in being with the Father. There's been no ontological separation. Um, mm-hmm. He's still ruling the universe, etc. So they're, they're in agreement over that. Yes. So the so can you maybe flesh out the, the way in which uh, Zwingli and Luther use the what we call the extra Calvinisticum to argue for their respective Eucharistic positions. So let's say, let's yeah. give them a look. Mm-hmm. Sorry. 
So let's begin with Luther. So Luther affirms the Chalcedonian Christology. He affirms, in in essence, what will come to be known as the extra-Calvinisticum. No, no, sorry. Luther, uh, Luther rejects the extra-Calvinisticum. Okay. So maybe you could flesh that. So so how does he understand then the... the so so how does he understand then the, the relationship of divine and human during the incarnation? Mm-hmm. So... Luther ends up saying that there is a development in how the human nature relates to the divine in terms of the gifts given. So Luther ends up arguing that after the resurrection and ascension, the human nature of Christ in some way has the use of the divine property of omnipresence such that it can be at multiple places at once. So he goes here with Ephesians 4.10 that Christ ascends to fill all things. And Luther argues that this means that the human nature of Christ is present wherever the divine person is. Arguing that for anything less, you would get Nestorianism. That's Luther's position. So they see this as part of the glorification of the human nature, that it now becomes potentially omnipresent. Now, one might note that the reform routinely argue that this does seem to go against Chalcedonian claims that each nature maintains its particular properties in the incarnation. And so in some ways you do have both sides arguing that the other is falling afoul of Chalcedon with the reformed accusing the Lutheran of Eutychianism and the Lutherans accusing the Reformed of Nestorianism. Yeah. Okay. So, so what? Yeah. You know, and I, I wasn't aware of this with Luther. I mean, I knew obviously the, the the debate between Luther and Zwingli, and the way in which Luther argued for the ubiquity of the the humanity, mm-hmm. um, in terms support of his his conception of what's happening vis a vis the presence of Christ at the table. Um, but he's actually arguing that there is. Uh, after the resurrection or after the ascension, there is a change that has taken place regarding the humanity. The humanity now partakes of the ubiquity of the deity. Yes, in some way, shape, or form. Now, Luther does not work that out entirely. Um, later Lutheran figures such as Johann Brenz and Martin Chemnitz really give the kind of theological background for this. And they have slightly different um, intensities of this. So, for instance, Johann Brenz argues that the human nature of Christ must by necessity take divine properties to be united. Uh, Martin Chemnitz, who's in the 1580s, argues that, no, this is not a matter of the necessity of the union, but the will. So Christ, by his incarnation, may will that his human nature can use properties that are properly his divine nature. And therefore, it is not a matter of the necessity of the union like Brenz, but a will to act by Christ, the person to basically lend, if you will, his human body a divine property so that the Eucharist can happen in the way the Lutherans understand it. So Chemnitz kind of comes back from arguing for an ontological uh, relationship here and argues that the, the after the ascension the humanity can if it w- desires so desires 
use the the ubiquity of the deity? Yes, yes. It's um it's sometimes called multivoluble presence. So um according voluble volition, according to the yes. will, the human nature can be in multiple places at once. That's where Chemnitz ultimately goes to try to keep it within the bounds of Chalcedon. Okay. So if, if you're thinking through the logic of uh, Luther's argument here, um, what's driving his perspective? Mm -hmm. um, is, it, is it his, does he, in other words, does he begin with the Lord's table? And the, in his mind, the, the, the given, it's a given that the, the body of Christ is present at the table, obviously he rejects transubstantiation, but nonetheless takes seriously that the I am there is an ontological statement. You know, I am, sorry, this is my flesh. Mm -hmm. um, that this is my body, that that's an ontological statement. So is that where he begins and then moves backward then to seek to, to explain this? Or how, what's the kind of logic in terms of the development of Luther's position, which obviously lay, lays at the foundation of uh, later Lutheran theolo theologians. Yes. Yeah, so as I've studied this now, I should note that my, my scholarship was primarily driven with the reform, but in so doing, I had to look at the Lutheran. Um, actually, this begins with Zwingli. So Zwingli is the first to bring this issue up. In a work from 1525 called On the Lord's Supper, Zwingli argues against transubstantiation that Christ is not able to be bodily in the elements because he's ascended into heaven and therefore is locally and bodily apart from the table. So Zwingli uses this to say that transubstantiation is impossible. In response to that work, Luther argues that no, we can have this idea of ubiquity. So I do think the order does go, Luther holds to a corporeal presence in the Eucharistic elements, and in order to secure that, he makes this move to the ubiquity of Christ's humanity in some sense. Okay. Okay. So in other words, the, what's driving Luther's theology here is, the, is, a, is his perspective on the table. Yes. Um, I, uh, and not speculation vis-a-vis -vis the relationship of the humanity and deity in the risen, ascended Christ. Yes, I think that's the way the kind of causality goes. For Luther, his view of Christology ends up getting determined by his view of the table, while with Zwingli and then Calvin and Bullinger and others, their view of Christology puts some boundaries on how they understand what's going on at the table. Okay. So Zwingli. So Zwingli then, uh, in the way that you've kind of fleshed out the development here of the doctrine, Zwingli then has a key role in provoking Luther to develop his view, mm -hmm. which then obviously Zwingli is going to respond to. Um, so how would you understand, how would you flesh out Zwingli's view in terms of this, this doctrine? Yeah, so Zwingli's concerned primarily in his early work with proclaiming the full mediatorship of Christ. That's kind of the, the real motivation, but behind his reformation, proper worship of God via Christ. And so he's very concerned with Christ being truly God and truly man so that he could be the mediator. Early on, as before he's engaged with Luther, he makes the case against Roman Catholic doctrine, arguing that transubstantiation does not work because it violates the true humanity of Christ and the ascension. 
Now, interestingly, just as a side note, Zwingli seems to be picking up on that argument of the ascension from the Hussites and the Bohemian Brethren. So this, there is kind of a Yang Hus connection here mm. in the background. So From is there, this Hus himself or the Hussite theology as it's developed in the 15th century? Uh, more Hussite theology as far as I know. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, Amy, Bur- uh, Amy Burnett at the University of Nebraska has done some work on this, looking at some of the influences on the Bohemian Brethren on Karlstadt. On Karlstadt? Yeah. And uh, I traced a, another connection to Zwingli on this point. Okay, is that generally known, the, the influence of the Hussites upon on Zwingli? Uh, no, I think this is uh, one of the small contributions of this part of the, the connection. Yeah, excellent. Okay. So um, to what degree – so you've got, you've got obviously then uh, Luther is developing his position in opposition mm-hmm. to, to Zwingli. Um, Luther, it strikes me that his argument – but then I'm coming at this <laughs> biased. I'm coming at this from a reform perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, it strikes me that Luther does, in his argument, does undermine Chalcedon in a way. Um, I, I think that, well, I think there's problems as the way Luther's expressed it for you also to express a Chalcedonian, uh, fully a robust Chalcedonian Christology. Um, Catholic theologians. Uh, are they involved in the in the debate during the 16th and 17th centuries? Uh, not particularly, um, especially in the 16th century. The Catholics kind of take a step back from this debate. They do reject Luther's view of ubiquity as well. Their debates with the Reformed are n- largely over the corporeal presence via transubstantiation. Right. And so the Roman Catholics and the Reformed agree on the extra-Calvinisticum. Um, they agree that Christ's human body has ascended and does not partake of omnipresence. Where they disagree is the corporeal presence in the elements. Right. Now, the, the big difference between the Lutheran position on this and the Roman Catholic is the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation does not actually specify a mechanism within the incarnation for it to function. So, Transubstantiation is in many ways left a miracle in Roman Catholic doctrine. While in Lutheran doctrine, there is a mechanism within the incarnation mm-hmm. to make it possible. And this is kind of where Luther goes beyond uh, the medieval doctrine of the supper. Okay. So turning then to Calvin, mm-hmm. uh, to what degree is Calvin, does Calvin build upon Zwingli? Does he develop that? Um, is he basically reaffirming simply what Zwingli argues, uh, etc. Yeah, so that's actually one of the points of my work, was to shift the focus away from Calvin himself. Much of the work on the extra-Calvinisticum, as you would imagine from the name, right, mm. had been focused on John Calvin. And Calvin does mention it in the Institutes two times quite explicitly. Uh, he also mentions it in his commentaries. But he really never develops the thought much. There's no theologizing from it. And this is largely because Zwingli had expressed this quite clearly, but so had Bullinger, uh, Zwingli's successor at Zurich, and contemporary other theologians. So um, I do spend some time looking at how Calvin and Bullinger expressed this doctrine in a document known as the Consensus Tigurinus, 
um, which is a Eucharistic concord between Geneva and Zurich, written in 1549 and published a couple years later, in which they agree on Christ's ascension as taking him bodily out of the realm of this world, and that his presence is according to his person, divinity, and the Holy Spirit, not his, his body in the supper. And so Zwingli and Bollinger do kind of take the ball further down the line in the consensus to Garinus expressing this doctrine. Okay. So the, um, the development that you look at specifically in your, your, your book then is post Calvin it's reformed theologians as they debate and develop this doctrine in the seven, 16th and 17th centuries. So I stop in the 1580s. So I do um, Zwingli and Luther, Calvin and Bullinger, and then I look at a figure named Peter Martyr van Migli, who mm-hmm. was one of the leading, well, he's Italian originally, but he mostly works in Switzerland alongside Bullinger and Calvin. And he wrote an entire work called A Dialogue on the Two Natures in Christ that deals with this issue specifically. And so I work with him next and show how he continues to develop this doctrine over and against the developments of Lutheran doctrines. Um, and then after that, I look at a little-known theologian named Anton de la Rochandu, who um, is a leader of the French Reformed Church, who wrote a scholastic disp- uh, disputation on the true humanity of Christ. So showing how the development of um, development of theological method over the course of the 16th century and how the scholastic method is used to kind of solidify the gains of the previous generation, not to go against them as some former scholarship has argued. So this becomes a kind of a hallmark of the whole reformed wing, because you're looking at Pietro Martiri, obviously Italian reformed. Um, he ends up in England, does he? Does he not at Cambridge? He does for, well, he ends up at Oxford for a brief time. So okay. um, under Edward VI, they arrange for Martin Bootser and Peter Martin Vermigli to come to England. Um, Bootser ends up at Cambridge, Cambridge and Vermigli ends up at Oxford. And when Mary I, Bloody Mary, comes to the throne, um, Vermigli is forced to flee. I, I believe Bootser dies while in England. So yeah, d- yeah he's buried in uh, Great St. Mary's. Yes. Um, in fact, I was just in Cambridge. Oh, lovely. And um, w- one of the things that you see at Great St. Well, Great St. Mary's is great because of the, the, the tower. You can go up and see mm. the whole of Cambridge. But it also has, beside the altar, uh, the burial place of Bootser. And mm. when Mary came to power, she disinterred the body, burned it outside the, 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 the doors of the, the, the church and made the mistake of leaving the ashes uh, because his followers came along, got the ashes. And after uh, the death of Mary and the, the accession of Elizabeth, reinterred the ashes. And so there is a sign there now um, that uh, Butzer was buried there is, and his, his burned body is now re- reburied there. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, yeah, so he dies. I think he dies. But he definitely dies before the accession of Mary. Mm-hmm. I think he dies in 1551. Mm, that's so great. a couple of years before the death of uh, Edward and the accession of Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're really looking at, and then Chandieu is uh, French uh, reformed based in, in um, 
in Paris. Um, so you're really kind of looking at this. This becomes standard to the whole reform view and obviously becomes a way of distinguishing themselves from uh, Lutheranism. Yes, this I argue uh, that this is actually one of the defining features that separates out the Lutheran and the Reformed, that for all their other kind of points of divergence, this is one of the key ones that along, I, I would actually argue it's more foundational than the Supper um, because they're different Eucharistic theologies issue into distinct Christologies. So for instance, in my conclusion, I look at a dis discussion called the Leipzig Disputation in 1630 or 31 um, that's taking place during the Thirty Years' War. And the Lutherans and the Reformed get together to try to find union, much like they did at Marburg in 1529. And they're able to both agree on a statement on the Lord's Supper. Now, it's a very vague statement, but they are both able to agree. But it's this point on how the two natures of Christ relate and the presence of Christ's body in its ascended state that they ultimately fall down on. And so this point of Christological dispute ends up being a quite lasting divergence between the two traditions. And the significance of this in terms of, you know, kind of the, where does this have significance in terms mm -hmm. of daily life? Uh, while well, the life of the church or the life together of believers is in the Eucharistic context. I would, th I would say that's part of it. Um, for the Reformed, so for the Reformed, I think one of the major issues is the question of where is Jesus now? It's a simple question that a child can ask. Um, it's trying to wrestle with this idea of divine absence in some ways. How is it that Christ has left us as the angel says he is not here? And yet at the same time, he says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them also. And so the Reformed are trying to wrestle with this as a sense of he is absent according to his humanity. He's ascended to the Father. Um, it is there that we look to him. And he's also present to us in his person and divinity and by the Holy Spirit. And there is a sense of the dynamic of spiritual life that is in some ways defined by this. So, so it's broader than simply, you know, what is happening at the, the, the Lord's table in terms of mm -hmm. the presence of Christ. It encompasses the, the, and really the entirety of the life of the, of the life of the, the church into, in a communal context. Yes, I, I would say so. Um, it also connects to how Christ is mediator. As much as the Reformed want to give the Lutherans the benefit of the doubt, and I do believe the Lutherans want to be affirming Chalcedon. Um, but I do think this does fall short in that if he is to be a true mediator, if Christ's humanity is like ours in every way except sin, then, then he must be in a place just like we are. He must be spatially located. And yeah, in other words, the ubiquity, we, we, even in our glorified humanity will not be ubiquitous mm -hmm. and Therefore, the glorified humanity of Christ to be like unto our, uh, for our humanity to be glorified that, like that of Christ, cannot, we, he cannot be ubiquitous in his humanity either. Exactly. And that, that is an argument that you see picked up several times. If we are to be like him in the end, but we will not be ubiquitous, neither is he. 
Um, yeah. And that gets picked up as early as Wingley and elaborated on um, by others. To what degree does this argument, this discussion, undermine, um, say, a, a robust understanding of pneumatology? Mm. So does, does this discussion have any as uh, to have an, uh, so let me back up. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the, one of the challenges of looking at the reform tradition as it develops is the whole area of the doctrine of the Holy spirit. So if you look at the Westminster confession, for example, mm -hmm. there is no separate article on the spirit. Now, one of the ways in which, you know, reformed, um, students of that have argued, well, you know, the, the, the pneumatology is throughout the, 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 the document, which is true, mm -hmm. but as time goes on, there is a concern that the reform tradition has somehow dropped the ball on pneumatology. Um, the sort of robust pneumatology you find, say, in, in Calvin, you know, that prompted, say, Warfield to describe him as the theologian of the spirit, that mm -hmm. is not always carried through. And do you think I'm asking you maybe to, I don't know if you addressed this or even have thought about this. Um, do you think that, that that failure of the Reformed tradition to engage with a robust pneumatology is in part a result of their emphasis on um, the, the, the presence of the deity um, in the extra-Calvinisticum? in every area of, of, of the of the church's life together? Or do you think, you think there's there's other things going on there? For instance, a reaction maybe to um, the kind of Anabaptist enthusiasm, quote unquote, or the mm -hmm. Quakers, or then the French prophets, the, these kind of things that emerge within the history of Protestantism that discourage a focus on the spirit. Yeah, I would say it's more the the latter as you've described it. Um, I, I would to defend the Westminster Confession, although it doesn't have a uh, chapter on the Holy Spirit, neither does it have a chapter on the Father. Um, it has a chapter on the Triune God and the mm -hmm. Son who becomes incarnate. Um, and so both of those are shot throughout. And I do think the Puritans maintain a lot of Calvin's emphasis on the Spirit throughout their works. Um, I think Owen is a good example of that, and many of the more pietistic pietist strands of Puritanism as well. But I, I hear what you're saying. I could see the potential difficulty, but if we understand the coming of the Spirit in a fully triune way, I don't think it needs to follow that way. So if we can think more kind of what is systematically versus historically, um, the sending of the spirit is possible because of the absence of the humanity in some sense that if we follow the ascension as this movement of crucified yet risen humanity into the heavenly holy of holies this pres pres presentation of the eternal sacrifice before the father that in some ways this empowers the sending of the spirit in this new way now the spirit is not taking the place of the divinity of the son but the spirit now united to humanity in a new way through the glorified flesh is poured out into the church, the extended body of Christ, to be the Trinity's kind of primary, oh, primary kind of, the, the term is appropriation, right? All the Spirit's works are the works of the Father mm -hmm. and the Son together, right? The Spirit is now the primary appropriation of the work amongst the church, connecting to the Son, 
and to the Father. Um, and so I don't think that the extra precipitates a forgetfulness of the Spirit. Um, I think if it's properly understood, um, it can actually enhance a view of the presence of the Spirit in the church, right? Which is not in tension with the presence of Christ with his people, but complement it together as the body has ascended. What, what do you think about that? That was kind of off the top of my head. But. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. Um, the Second London Confession, I, I need to make the point for, for those of us who are Baptists, <laughs> uh, it basically follows the Westminster here too. So the same critique, if you're going to critique the Westminster about this, the, the Second London Confession falls into that same ballpark. And the Puritans are very concerned about the work of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, do, now, in, the, in, the, in, the, in your book, do you develop the relationship between pneumatology and uh, the extra Calvinisticum? I really don't. Um, I did not see this. I was trying to do very, very carefully a historical account. Yes. And yes. it does not seem, while the Spirit is definitely mentioned as the continued presence of Christ amongst his people, um, it is not a major focus, uh, even in Calvin or the others. But that's partially just like when we see this in the early debates on Christ's person. Um, the Spirit doesn't come up very often. That's not because the Spirit is neglected, but the question at hand is often much more about the relationship of the two natures and the one person. Um, and I, I see that kind of happening in the Reformation as well. The, the focus is very much on Christology, not on pneumatology per se. Yeah. So um, have you thought about the possibility of uh, making a quote-unquote popular version? Uh, you know, the, the, the challenge with, um, you know, once you publish your thesis, the challenge is the academic publishing houses that usually carry these sorts of works, uh, they're expensive. And um, so it strikes me that the sort of work that you've done is, is very important and deserves a wider exposure uh, than uh, probably, you know, it, it has. Um, I, I, I'm sure that if you mention the phrase extra Calvinisticum uh, to most church folk, uh, they'll kind of look a bit, they'll have a bewildered look as to what on earth are you talking about? Um, but this, I think is, I think it's a very important uh, issue. Um, it has been in terms of my own thinking about the table mm. and uh, also in terms of Christology. Um, and have you thought about the possibility of doing something on a more popular level? And uh, I have thought about it. I, I do think you, I, I think it's important. I, I think it's a thought. It also takes us to the exalted Christ, to the importance of the ascension. Yes. Um, it, it keeps us from thinking about Christ as a event in the past, but as yep. our contemporary and how he is contemporary with us. Um, I've struggled to, I've written some smaller popular pieces for like modern reformation um, and Christ overall on this topic for Christmas, especially to think through the glory of the incarnation that remember the baby in the manger is also the one upholding the very being of that manger as the word of the father at the same time. Um, But yeah, I've yet to figure out quite the angle of a more popular presentation. Um, As you, you kind of get tied up with the, uh, the Latin terms and the careful expressions. It's kind of hard to um, think through how to bring it more popularly, but uh, it is something I, I continue to think about. 
Yeah, especially given that, you know, the Ascension is something almost completely forgotten. And the the Ascension and Session. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure if you were including the idea of the Session of Christ, the being seated Mm -hmm. at the right hand of the Father in the Ascension. But that that's a whole area that uh, mm-hmm. we 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 it, it's very prominent, obviously, in past places like Ephesians mm-hmm. and Colossians, um, Hebrews to some degree, um, and is critical in our understanding of, as you say, the presence of Christ today, um, and what is He doing now. Um, but we seem to have, yeah, it's, I mean, evangelicalism has been very focused uh, crucicentrically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the cross, even to the expense of the resurrection, uh, to some degree, and um, very few Christian traditions celebrate the ascension, for example. Yeah, and I I think that entire I would see it as the entire exalted ministry of Christ from ascension, uh, ascension, session, intercession, and Pentecost are all acts of Christ yep. that need to be included, right? The Pentecost is obviously an act of Christ and the Father sending the Spirit. So it is a a kind of a revelation of that eternal mission of the Spirit in time. Um, And there's plenty of stuff that needs to be focused on there. Um, I would argue that it's actually one of the largest burdens of the book of Hebrews to describe this, to um, help us understand that without the ascension, in some ways, the cross and the resurrection are incomplete. That just like at the Day of Atonement, the blood must be taken into the very presence of God. And that's what the ascension does. And Christ continues to intercede for us in his body with his wounds. That he, you know, eternally lives to intercede. And that is a continued reality that takes us to the heart of this question of where is he? What is he doing? How is he absent and yet present even now? Um, and that should lead us to prayer, praise, and worship, but also expectation of his return, right? Because there is a sense where he has left bodily and will return bodily to renew creation. So we talk about this. It also applies the goodness of creation itself, that Christ's human nature did not need to transcend the normal creaturely boundaries on humanity, that even our glorified state that will model his is not a repudiation of creation, but it's glorification. It is still finite. Mm. It is still localized. And it will be in the eschaton as well. So this this topic, I think, actually spreads across almost all the loci um, in its implications. You know, I wonder maybe a way into looking at the topic on a popular level would be mm-hmm. to, to describe it within the context of what you've described here mm-hmm. and then um, focus in you know, maybe in a certain section of that, of a book like that, um, on the, what we call the extra Calvinisticum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the approach would maybe be treating it much more um, systematically and expositionally in yep. scripture. Then my, my book is much more a historical focus, first and yep. foremost, of how this develops. Um, and there are many things you don't need to necessarily include, right? They just happen to occur. And so yeah. you talk about them this way. So um, but yeah, it's an interesting idea. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Drake. We've been uh, talking about uh, Dr. Drake's uh, book uh, published by OUP, uh, The Flesh of the Word, The Extra Calvinisticum from Zwingli uh, to Early Orthodoxy. Uh, strongly recommend uh, you purchase that. Um, I don't think it's in, is it yet in veil? It's not in paperback yet, is it? Uh, not yet, Lord willing. No. 
Okay. And uh, every blessing upon your ministry there in Indianapolis. And thank you so much uh, for joining us in this uh, in this podcast. Thank you, Dr. Aiken. It was a pleasure to be with you and uh, chat about this. God bless you. you. God bless. Beat is co-hosted by Caleb Anthony Neal and is produced in partnership with the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies, an historical research center at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary that seeks to promote the study of Baptist history and theological reflections on its contemporary significance. For more by Dr. Haken, follow him on his substack at Historia Ecclesiastica. Links are in the description. We'll see you next time on Bede.